Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows. From an incredible roster of artists and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. On the last episode, we heard how the channel faced choppy waters as it tried to reorganize by filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, while external pressures became intense. Heavy metal was a mainstay of the channel's programming, and while mostly the shows went off without a hitch, every now and then, well, a series of misfortunes tried the spirits of some metal bands that persevered and even became superstars. Way back in the beginning on May 29, 1980, the channel, then known as Channel One, hosted the first in what was to be thousands of concerts over the next 11 years. This invitation-only VIP pre-opening event was well attended. Boston's music elites, including musicians, managers, media members, DJs, even the biggest promoter in town, Don Law, showed up with a magnum of celebratory champagne. So we were negotiating with Don Law. He wanted to book the club exclusively. His proposal was that he would do all national acts and we would only be allowed to book local acts in the club. If a, nat- if a local band signed a national contract, uh, we would no longer be allowed to speak with them. He would be the only one that could represent us to them or them to us. So we had two hangups. That one was one and the second one was merchandising. Part, uh, you know, a big part of rock and roll shows is T-shirts and records and jackets and hats and everything. And, you know, the, the promoter usually gets uh, a part of it. He wanted all of that, and uh, we wanted uh, to share in it. The deal never happened. Instead, Law opted to book his national shows at the Metro, a crosstown club owned by Patrick Lyons. So we found out uh, that Law had made a deal with the Metro, which was a, a hot disco on Lansdowne Street at the time, from reading the Globe. We thought that our deal with him might work out because he had shown up at our opening with a bottle of champagne and congratulations and everything else. The last time that uh, we met, his assistant told me straight out, if you guys don't take this deal, you're going to be out of business in six months. We'll make sure of that. And, uh, you know, I believe that, uh, that they meant it. Headlining that first show 40 years ago was an up-and-coming power pop trio, the new models who rocked the house from the minute they stepped on the stage until last call the next morning. Casey Lindstrom is the lead vocalist of the New Models and remembers the night. Uh, we were around from 1980 to 1985. 
And then I did the same thing for my band, Shake the Faith. And we were around from 1987 to 1989. Hope everybody remembers us. And it's okay if you don't, because that was a long time ago. It's okay. For the new models, it was a case of first and last, basically. We formed early in 1980 and played our, one of our first gigs at a place called The Underground. I hope everybody remembers that place. It was in Alston, Brighton, right on the corner of where Comav takes the big turn. And uh, we played our set and we were creating a little buzz around town. And a guy, Rich Clement from the channel came up to us and said, hey, you guys, uh, you guys sound great. Would you be interested in playing the channel's opening party, right? So it's pre-opening party. And of course we were like, yeah, absolutely. We'd be happy to do that. So we uh, opened the club May 29th, 1980 and played the night before that uh, the neighborhoods actually did the hard opening. So we were the soft opening. And a couple memories from that. If you all recall, when you walked in, there was a bar right ahead of you and kind of a room where people would hang out to get a little bit away from the music. And as you walk into the club, if you remember, you'd take a look to your left and the stage was down at that far end on your left playing kind of the long way into the room. Well, that night in the first you know few months, the stage was set up. So it was actually playing, you know, set up on the wide side, if you will, just on the other side of the bar. And it was really weird because it played right towards the channel and the glass that was up there is kind of a, is kind of an interesting place to mix a band. You know, I'd never played an industry type of thing, so it's a lot different than having, you know, all the, all the fans and kids right up in front of you at the stage versus writers and critics and everybody kind of too cool for school, right? So that was kind of a weird thing for us. The last show that New Models ever played was at the channel in 1985. And I remember showing up for sound check at about six o'clock and there was already a line out the parking lot and down Neko Street. And I was just so psyched, um, really wanted to send the band out with a bang. And we sure did. That was a lot of fun that night. Uh, full house. That was uh, definitely a night I will never forget. One of the other things that I remember uh, from the channel, just they were really gracious to all the musicians and it was always great to come hang out. The New Models was suggested as an opening uh, night uh, headliner by Rich Clemens. He was one of the original investors at the channel. He thought that this uh, band with their uh, unique sound and uh, high level of audience participation was the perfect opening night band for what was then known as Channel One, Boston's largest rock dance club. Now we are fast forwarding. More than 11 years later, in December of 1991, the channel is facing an uncertain future. Just three months earlier, a new management team had come in with big promises. Promises of bigger shows, big renovations, and better production that they were going to bring to the channel. So the consensus was 
that in order for the money to come in, the investment money to come in to reorganize the channel, I had to be out. How did the channel get into such a precarious position? Or what the fuck happened? Um, by the summer of 1991, the money problems were mounting. I agreed to step aside and let the new team take a hand at running the channel. So the new team consisted of uh, Jack Burke, who was my partner, Steve Marullo, club attorney for years, and DeSaro, who was raising the money. He had, uh, he had come up with $100,000 that uh, Marullo was holding in escrow to guarantee the Chapter 11 reorganization. And Peter and I would step aside, and part of the plan was that they would buy us out. For the first time in over 11 years, Harry Boris was not a part of the channel's operations. There was now a new team at the channel running things. The booking seemed strong, and they were living up to the channel's commitment to diversity. And people were coming, paying a cover charge, and drinking. Was I comfortable with the way things were going? Not really. But things seemed to be going okay as far as booking and business was coming in. Uh, ticket prices were, you know, a little higher, but uh, they seemed to be, you know, working. We would continue to have board of directors meetings and uh, DeSaro would usually attend. And, you know, there's always, you know, plans and schemes and ways that the place was really going to uh, take off. So I wasn't crazy about the people that were coming in there. There were some ex-employees that uh, left under certain situations. They were also causing up to Don Law, a longtime uh, nemesis who for years was trying to put us out of business. And uh, they were doing some shows that Don Law had booked and promoted in the channel. So I had patience. Uh, they had 100000 on the line. The team consisted of my partner, Jack, whom I trusted, and Marulo, who was our lawyer. So I figured that things were going to work out okay. Despite a good beginning, Stephen DeSara was still worried. Money was coming in, but a lot more seemed to be going out. His plan to solve his money problems by taking over the cash cow called the Channel Nightclub were not going so well. He had tried raising money from some of his past business associates, but it seemed the numbers just didn't add up. He had one more option. Having grown up around Providence Underworld figures, his actual godfather was the late New England Mafia Don, Raymond Patriarca. DeSaro decided to look in that direction. He called on an old friend, Thomas Hillary, who had some big ideas of his own after seeing a sold-out show at the channel. Reporting for the Boston Herald in May of 2018 on the federal trial of Cadillac Frank Salemi for the 1993 murder of Stephen J. DeSaro, Laurel J. Sweet mentions, quote, Hillary said the plan for the channel was, if the concert venue pulled in $100,000 in a week, the mob would skim off $80,000 and the IRS would be none the wiser. It would be like laundering money, end quote, he said. The cast of characters that started coming through the door weren't uh, exactly confidence-evoking. Uh, they uh, had this idea, you know, they, they, you know the first few uh, uh, weeks they had some, uh, good, some good nights, some sellouts, so they saw a night when we might do $20,000 in the bar and do a twenty-five dollars or $30,000 gate and figure, hey, why don't we do this seven nights a week? Then we'll make all this money. Uh, they didn't really get the business. At first, the wise guy's presence was hardly noticeable. Even after DeSaro introduced Frank Salemi Jr., no major alarms were raised immediately. DeSaro said Frank Jr. was a legitimate Hollywood producer with very strong contacts in the entertainment industry. 
Peter first met Frank Jr. in the late summer of 1991. Hanging out with Steve, you know, he would casually, you know, talk about different uh, situations, different people that he knows, you know, in and around the nightclub business. And then he casually mentioned Frank Salemi. You know, when I said Salemi, I said, oh, he said, yeah, he said, that's uh, Cadillac Frank's kid. I said, oh, okay. He said, but don't worry, you know, he's a straight shooter, he's a businessman, and he's not going to cause any problems. He just wants to make things work, you know, and uh, be associated with us. I said, okay. And, you know, then I met young Frank, you know, in the club. He seemed pretty sensible. He wasn't uh, bouncing off the walls as he, you know, bounced off the walls later on. So he was okay. Through the fall of 1991, things went from good to bad to worse financially. Nobody seemed to be in charge. There was now a fee for parking. Ticket prices went up, but DJs and bands were getting stiffed. There also seemed to be a darkness that transcended the channel's black-dominated color scheme. By then, I started to understand that things weren't getting any better at all. The new team that was operating the club, there was plenty of money coming in. They had some really good shows, some sellouts, but very little was being applied to paying some of the obligations, including rent, Massachusetts meals taxes. You know, they were on the list with all the liquor companies, meaning they couldn't get deliveries except for COD, cash and delivery. So they were buying liquor at the local salty package stores, which was violations of the liquor license. The relationship with music communities, uh, with the Boston music community and the national uh, music community had pretty much soured. One agent told me later that when he asked for his points after a sold out show, he was shown a loaded gun and they told him, here are your points, do you want them? It just uh, wasn't working out. By then, Marulo was informed by me that we would be coming back into the club and asserting our rights as majority holders of the corporation, and we would be returning to the club. And Peter and I actually returned to the club. And the 100,000 that Marulo had in escrow, uh, that seemed to have evaporated. Nobody really knew what had happened to it. By late fall 1991, after letting DeSaro's team take the reins, the old management team was back running the channel. But it wouldn't be easy. During that short time, there was a whole cast of characters that paraded through trying to do something. Everybody had an original idea. Everybody had a connection that would make the place turn around. Everybody had some kind of a deal. Uh, nothing seemed to work. Stephen J. Marullo was the longtime channel attorney. When... Frank Salemi got involved with the channel. I was still night manager. And Steve came in as a sort of co-night manager. And I told uh, Frank Salemi Jr. after a while that two people couldn't be night managers of the channel. It doesn't work like that. When I thought that Steve was going to be involved uh, with me and, and, and the Borises, I was all in. When I discovered that he was bringing in Salemi, I hit the pavement. 
Okay. I was no no longer interested. Nobody can be Salemi's partner anyway. He wouldn't have allowed that. So financially, things had deteriorated to a level that uh, I had not, uh, I could not have imagined. I informed Desaro that uh, the plan wasn't working, and that uh, we'd have to start over. Uh, we'd have discussions, and for the most part, Desaro was uh, reasonable. He, you know, he could talk. Frank Jr. not so much. Frank Salemi Jr. felt he was being encroached on, and his violent tendencies became more apparent. I remember it was a weekend night, and uh, it was around probably 3.30, 4 in the morning after the bands had loaded out. And, you know, as I went around checking all the doors to make sure everybody was out, I went into Neko Place, and there was Steve DeSaro and, uh, and Frank Salemi. And, you know, I said to them, come on, guys, let's get out of here. It's getting late. You know, we need to close up. So they both ignored me. I had to repeat myself. And then after I repeated myself, you know, Frank lunged at me and, you know, we started having a physical confrontation. We ended up on the floor rolling around, exchanging some scratches and punches, maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Then as we were on the floor, I dropped my gun, a 38 snub nose uh, revolver that I carried in the small of my back. So when Steve saw that, you know, he quickly grabbed the gun, put it in his pocket, pulled us apart and, you know, said to Frank, come on, Frank, let's get the fuck out of here. And all of that was probably prompted because, you know, we were looking for other options and other avenues of uh, funding our money problem. And, you know, they felt that, uh, that, you know, we were, you know, going to go with somebody else. And that was the problem that we had with him. He didn't want to accept that, you know. A few days later, Harry had his own encounter with Frank Jr. Shortly after we'd gone back in, I went into the little club in the back, uh, which was Neko Place. I think they had renamed it into something else. And uh, I went in there and I saw, you know, there was one bar there, and I saw Frank Jr. Uh, going into the bar. And I said to him, uh, you're not supposed to be back there. So he came out of the bar very angry. You know, it was obvious that he had uh, been snorting cocaine. It was telltale signs. He had a, uh, his girlfriend was with him and she was a, an exotic dancer. I think she worked the naked eye. And uh, she came over and she tried to tell him to back off a little bit because he was obviously very angry. He slapped her across the face. And uh, there was this other guy there who people had told me was his bodyguard. This, uh, Guy, young guy with a long leather coat, black leather coat, uh, open, uh, and where you could see a gun, a, ho- a holster, you know, a shoulder holster. So uh, he he said, "You think you guys think of coming back? You're not coming back. Let's just have a gunfight. Let's do it right now. You get your guys, I get my guys. You get your guns, and let's meet in the parking lot. Let's have it out right here, right now." I looked at him. You know, was I scared? Yeah, I was scared. And I just said to him, look, Frank, I don't do guns. I do lawyers. Let's just call our lawyers and get this thing resolved. And I just walked out. The next morning, I called Marulo. And I told him exactly what had happened. It was similar to the Ferrara uh, incident that had happened you know, about five or six years before. I figured if everything was down and everybody knew what was going on, they're not going to pull any uh, funny business. Uh, that afternoon... Uh, I met with um, 
a guy who was a who used to be the uh, sheriff of Suffolk County, and he had a security firm. And a friend of mine knew him well, and we sat down, and you know, I told him exactly what had happened. I asked I asked him to make sure everything's recorded down, and uh, you know, we spent about an hour, an hour and a half with him. And you know, obviously, he wanted to he wanted me to hire him uh, for security, but uh, at the time, I don't think I could have afforded him. But uh, I just figured if he knew about it, you know, he was close to law enforcement, and I figured that would uh, give us a little bit of security. So that night, uh, when I went back to the club, I made sure I told DeSaro what uh, had happened and that I had spoken to both Malugo and the ex-sheriff, knowing that it would get back to both Salemi Jr. and Salemi Sr. Now there was open hostility. Was it too late to save the channel? Maybe there was still one hope. The Cramps were a perennial channel headliner with a wildly enthusiastic fan base. They are described by Mark Deming in a recent biography for AllMusic.com as, quote, psychobilly pioneers who developed a brain-frying mix of rockabilly and garage rock with a gloriously tasteless vision of American trash culture, end quote. It was a last-minute booking for New Year's Eve, and Harry Boris was hoping a big sellout might help rescue the flailing business. It was a Hail Mary pass at best. You know, the cramps. It was a last-minute booking. They were available. And, and I figured the cramps, a channel favorite, that if, you know, if, we, if, if we could pull off a, a good sellout, you know, maybe we could you know, bounce back. But it was too late. Uh, it, it was a, we were in the middle of a recession. Christmas week, business was dismal. The checkbook was badly overdrawn. And they hadn't even paid for a, a, a license for the new year. So at 12 o'clock, they could come in and close us down anyway. So we just decided to cancel it because there's no way we could have pulled it off. By the end of the year, it seemed unlikely the club could stay afloat. On December 31st, 1991, the Boston Globe headline told it all. Cramps canceled as the channel closes its doors. On New Year's Eve in 1991, the channel went dark. This is part one of our final episode of season one, Boston Venue, The Channel Story. In part two, which will be coming much quicker than this one, we'll deal with the channel after Harry and his team departed. When the biggest promoter and the biggest gangster in town try their hand at resurrecting an iconic Boston rock club, what could possibly go wrong? Music featured in this episode is by Wargasm and the new models. Intro music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers, Casey Lindstrom, Steve Marullo, and Peter Boris. Boston Venue, The Channel Story was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LaPrette. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writers, David Ginsberg and Jennifer C. Boris. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Tony Baglio. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. 
Learn more on thechannelstory.com or on Facebook at Boston Venue, The Channel Podcast. Feel free to leave your comments and share your stories. If you like the show, leave a review. We really appreciate it. Channel Vision, our live streaming COVID-fueled concert series, is available on our Facebook page and helps benefit the Boston Venue Unity Fund, set up to help local artists dealing with the pandemic. To donate, please visit bostonvenueunityfund.org. I'm burning in